Okay, we're going to begin a new series tonight. We've been doing resurrection extras up to this point, and uh, we're going to begin a new series tonight. And we usually go from Old Testament to New Testament. It's been our habit for many years is to uh, do an Old Testament book, turn around and do a New Testament book. And so we're going into the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians uh, tonight, and begin that study through the book of Corinthians. It's been a while since I've done this. There's, I don't think there's anything I haven't done. <laughs> I've been at this for a long time. I've been speaking three times a week for years. So there's not much that I haven't done. This we have done but quite a while, I think, into the past. And so uh, we just finished Joshua before Easter came, and we did Easter fill-ins. And then uh, we're going to start here in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians, uh, tonight as we uh, begin. And read a verse and then stop, and we'll think through it. Uh, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Jesus Christ, called to be saints, with all that in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace be unto you, peace from God our Father, from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the author is Paul, and uh, he's the one who calls himself an apostle, which means a messenger. He's a messenger. An apostle, really, the word means messenger. He's a sent from God as a messenger to bring information to us. And there was probably none better ever than he was. And it's a fascinating thing to me that here's a guy was walking down a road, and he hated Jesus, and he hated the church, and so he said, it says he was breathing out threatening and slaughter. That is, I'm going to find those Christians and I'm going to kill them. And that's what, <laughs> he was walking down the road and it was so much a part of his nature as he breathed it out. It was inside of him, I'm going to get rid of the Jesus cult. And then uh, Jesus knocked him on the ground He's laying in the dirt, blind. That, that'll get your attention, right? That'll get your attention. He's rolling around in the dirt. He's blind. And uh, Jesus talks to him. He said, what's the matter with you? He said, uh, and he says, who are you? He knew when he got knocked on the ground that it was somebody a lot bigger and stronger than he was. And so as he's laying in the dust, he's thinking, wow, who's it, who did that? And he says, me. Jesus said, I did that. It's Jesus you're talking to. And that changed him instantaneously right there. And that's what makes him so rare because it takes us a long time to change. Huh? Right? We got a long time. But Jesus said something to him as he's laying in the dirt. He said, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. Or in other words, uh, something's been happening to you, Paul, and your conscience is not right. You can't take it anymore. And that was true. Well, his conscience was bothering him. It started when they stoned Stephen. In the book of Acts, Stephen was a 20-year-old preacher, the best preacher they had. 20 years old, preached like a house on fire. He got up and preached a sermon. They got so mad, they stoned him. And Paul was there, and he said, I'll hold your coat. You throw the stones. And so he held everybody's coat while they stoned Stephen. And that had such a profound effect on him that after that, he was having a conflict in his own mind. I don't know what to think about this. That guy died well. That guy died looking up to heaven, and I never forget what he said. He said, I saw G I see Jesus. And Paul said, I didn't see him, but he said, I see Jesus standing. Now, if we ask, where's Jesus? We would answer, he's seated on the right hand of God. That's what we would say. But the Stephen said, I see Jesus standing. 
because Jesus is excited. That's why he's getting up. He said, come on up, boy. I'll take you right up here. And he took him up. And that was a profound effect on Paul. And Paul gave in to Jesus right there. And he said, I'm going to send you all over. And you're going to preach my gospel even to kings. I'm going to send you all over. So you're going to suffer for it. You're going to pay a price to do it. But uh, if you believe in me, let's go. And Paul said, I'm with you. Let's go. Just like that. Just like that. Well, he's the greatest mind, one of the greatest minds of all times. He's, he's much more brilliant than people that we call brilliant. And we'll get into that a little tonight. Uh, and uh, he's extremely brilliant, and God's going to use him. And what he did, he started traveling around and starting churches. And he went to Greece, to the city of Corinth. And uh, <coughs> in the city of Corinth was located in Greece, so that it was close to trade routes. And so it was a very wealthy city, very influential city in Greece, and also a vile place. It was a vile place. And he went in there, founded a church there, and then, like he often did, got it going and then moved on to do more. And now he's writing a letter back to them because he got some news. He tries to keep up with what's going on, and he's got some news about some things that were going on in the church in Corinth. And he's going to uh, address some of the things that are going on in Corinth. And the question that uh, we want to ask ourselves is how do we run a church? How do you run a church? You say, well, I never had to think about that. I did. I had to think about that. I had to think about how do you run a church? Uh, what do we do? What should we do? And how do you go about it? Paul founded them all around, knew how to run them, and has given many, many instructions, starting in Romans and going Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and so on and so forth. Through all those books, he became like a technician, and I say that carefully, that is, he knew how to fix a church. He knew how a church was supposed to run. He understood the way that churches should operate, and this church at Corinth had a problem. As a matter of fact, had a lot of problems. And so he's going to address the problems in Corinth. Some people have called it the Corinthian catastrophe. I do not call it that. I do not embrace that kind of thinking. Yeah, they had problems, okay. I haven't found a church yet that didn't. And somebody said, you ever find a perfect church, don't join it, you'll wreck it. <laughs> you'll ruin it. And that's true. There's no perfect church. All right. And there's always problems somewhere. And uh, what has been my personal experience is I was in several different churches before I came here in 1989. And uh, the, what I learned the most from was what they did wrong. If you ask, well, how do you know what to do? Well, I learned what not to do. <laughs> don't do that. Don't do that. And don't do this and that. And so you have these experiences uh, where you learn, here's not the way to go. So when we're going through the book of Corinthians, that's what we have. We have things, don't do this. Make sure you don't do that. And that's going to be how you run your church, not the way they're doing it. The Corinthian church had quite a few situations that he ironed out, and we'll go through the list as we go down through to see what is going on. But uh, I was in situations, and I would say that people did it wrong, and it wasn't intentional. Right? They didn't say, I'm going to do this wrong now. That's not what they did. Uh, I would say more... It was unwise, 
Uh, there was a lack of wisdom a lot of times. And one of the things that has come up, and it's still around today, uh, when they, people say, well, how do you run a church? Uh, there's what we, I call the church fad. And you know what a fad is. It's something that's popular for a little while, doesn't amount to much, and goes away. And the church has always had a problem, I think, lately with fads. I remember in the 70s, I was in a church, and uh, there was a guy who was writing books back then, very popular author. People loved this guy. He was writing books on how to raise your teenagers. And uh, I mean, he was the biggest thing going. Everybody loved him. And I found out after I looked into him a little bit that he was in his 30s living in his mother's basement. <laughs> and I said to myself, what does he know? He is not married. He's still home with mommy in his 30s and never had a child, never had anything like that. And now he's advising people how, and people are eating it up. Oh, this is fantastic. And one of the things he did was he used things in nature. And he said, well, your child can be like an eagle. And we'll do this, and your child will soar like an eagle. And I got a whole sum of material. And there's a whole uh, several pages about an eagle. I took it to my father, who was an expert. And I said, read that. And he read it through, and he tossed it aside. I said, what do you think? He said, well, that guy doesn't know anything about eagles. <laughs> so here's a guy who doesn't know anything about raising kids. He's using the eagle as his, here's my hook to get you to buy my material. And he, you would go to a, se a seminar. He'd have a weekend seminar, and you'd pay $70 just for the materials. He'd give you a big stack of papers. Here you go. You can take it home, and it's beautiful. It's fantastic. And it wasn't worth the paper was printed on. It was a fad. Well, what got worse is that then he had people's head swell, his head swelled, and he said, I'm going to write a book on how to run your church services. And sure enough, the people in the church I was in said, We're going to do that. And that was the, the only word I can use to describe when they tried it is disastrous. It was horrible. And I had a couple comments on the side <laughs> that I made, but that's not, that's not the way to do things. Right. And so he asked, well, how do you run a church? Well, you don't run it by following after a fad. Uh, that's not how it's done, and that's very popular today. There are fads all over the place. This is how we do it. All right, and so uh, we need the Book of Corinth and the purpose of it would be to tell us, well, here's how not to do it. This is what they did. Don't do it that way. And so we can learn, sometimes you learn more that way than any other way. And one of the things about running a church is that um, there are certain things that uh, we do because we have a background. There's a background. Well, how do we know what to do? Well, it's kind of been a certain way that services have been, when I think, when they're done right. And uh, one of the shining examples in history is a, is a Methodist church. Church of England was deader than a doornail. They had reached a point where they said it was illegal to sing. They didn't want you singing. I mean, come on, guys. So uh, it was dead as a doornail, and along comes Wesley, his, Charles and John, and they're going to start a new thing. And so they're meeting in a barn. They're meeting anywhere they can find it. They meet in the fields. Uh, they're meeting in a schoolhouse. And that actually happened right on this corner. This church started in a schoolhouse on that corner. We think it was there. We don't know. They ran circuit riders out of, out of uh, Niagara Falls, 
and that's where the preacher came from. He got on a horse in Niagara Falls and he rode out to that barn and that field and this schoolhouse on this corner here and they founded a church and that's how the East Shelby Church was started uh, by that, that uh, uh, and then it was called West Jackson Corner. There's a reason we use that name. And so uh, those churches were noted for three things. Number one, they prayed. Number two, they sang with vigor. They loved to sing. And the red hymn book that is not here now is a Methodist hymn book that we use towards Christmas time. And there's a, there's a thing in the front written by John Wesley. And he says, when you go to church, lift up your voice with strength and be no more afraid of it being heard now as when you used to sing the songs of Satan. <laughs> In other words, sing, come on, sing. And, so, and then the other thing is a very direct style of biblical preaching. And that's what they went to, and that was the most vibrant movement almost in all of history. Powerful movement. Movement went across Europe, came over into the United States under Francis Asbury, and went all over and came here. And you look in the history of this area, it far outshined everything else. There's a Methodist church here, Methodist church Millville, Methodist Church in Westbury, Methodist Church in Shelby, Methodist Church in West Shelby, and it just goes on and on. They were everywhere. Very powerful movement because they figured it out how to do it right. And so we follow that kind of example. We got a background where we can say, well, here's what these people did that really got it together. They loved to sing hymns what we do, right? We sing. We like to sing. Direct preaching style. And uh, we have things that have been handed down to us. One of the things that I always had in almost everywhere I was was pass a plate. And I said, when we start our church, I want to de-emphasize money. I want it to not even be an issue. So we never passed a plate. We stuck a box in the back. It's been back there for 33 years because we're trying to de-emphasize some things and emphasize other things. And so but we have background that helps us so that we have a pattern kind of to follow. But you understand the church in Corinth, there's no background, there's no pattern, there's nothing. There's nothing. What do they know about church? There wasn't a church in the whole city. There was temples there where the prostitutes gathered. That's what they were used to. Their religions were, well, that's what they were. All right? And so they said, well, we, we worship Diana. We worship uh, Apollos and this one and that one and the other one. And uh, that's all they had. And so Paul comes along, preaches, they understand about Christ through his preaching. So we'll start a church and they get things going. Well, what do we do now? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what we do. Do the best we can. So when they call it a catastrophe, I think they've got a lot of reason to say, look, these poor people, what do they know? What do they know? I mean, we can hardly figure it out nowadays what to do when we got all kinds of information. These people, they don't have a Bible. If they got a Bible, it's the Old Testament. They got no New Testament, all right, until Paul writes a letter to them, all right, and then he gets it. They probably eventually had maybe Matthew's Gospel was one of the earliest ones. They might have picked that up, and maybe Mark's, probably not Luke's. Or John, certainly not John's gospel. So, uh, they, what do you got to go on? Well, not, not much. And so they made mistakes, bound to, can't help it. But it's okay because uh, Paul's going to help him through, think, here's what you need to do. And he's really going to say, don't do that. <laughs> and don't do that. And you don't do that, he's going to say. And that's going to help all of us as we think about how a church should operate. 
how church should run. All right. And so now let's go back. Paul called to be apostle. He's a messenger. He's coming from Jesus Christ through the will of God. He's in the dirt, right? Blind in the dirt. And Sosthenes, who is the guy that is writing down what Paul says. Paul dictated all of his letters except for one. There was a letter to Galatians he wrote himself because he was so heated up. Um, give me a pen. I'm writing this when he wrote Galatians. And he comments in Galatians a couple of things. He said, uh, when I was with you, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me if you could. And we think, we can't swear to it, but we think, and it's the most logical conclusion, that Paul had a terribly bad eyesight. And so writing, the only way he could write was write great big letters. And when he gets mad enough to write a letter of his own, when he gets towards the end, he says, see the big letters I'm using. <laughs> All right, so he needs somebody to write for him. Sosthenes is his guy here. He's going to be uh, writing what Paul dictates. And so you can imagine, let's write a letter. Okay. Now, how long are your letters? I mean, mine, mine's a half a paragraph, you know, when I write a letter. It says, hi, how you doing? See you later. Bye. You know, this, that's right. Hang on to your hat, man. He's going to dictate for 15 chapters. Get ready. He's got a lot to say. And when I say he's a church technician, I want to say this right away. He knows how to fix what's wrong. He's very good at it. But he is also so full of God that he'll be writing along and he'll say, okay, the church says you shouldn't do that. And Jesus said, to him, and as soon as he mentions Jesus, he goes, who should be worshiped and praised forever and ever world without end? Amen. He can't help himself. He's full of these little, what I call doxologies. And so he'll mention Jesus and he'll go off on a tangent. Oh, Jesus is wonderful. He's the best thing that ever was. And I love Jesus. And he, and, oh, yeah, let me go back. And so when you're reading his stuff, it can be hard to follow. It is not meant to be a treatise where, all right, here's how it goes. Romans is a treatise. That's a little different. Says in Romans, he's writing a letter, but he is explaining truth. In the same way with Ephesians. Those are both treatises. They're letters, but he had a different form. But he's just talking to his friends here. And so he's writing him a letter. And so it's a different uh, form of writing, and he uh, will sometimes go off, it looks like on a tangent. It's not really a tangent, because it's all valuable, but uh, when you read it and you're looking for what I talked about Sunday morning, the flow of argument, remember we mentioned that, you may not find it easily because there's a lot of little things tossed in. All right. So he says, here I am writing a letter. Sassanese is the one I'm dictating to. I'm writing to the church of God at Corinth. I founded that church. To them are sanctified in Jesus Christ, called to be saints. All right. He says, you're meant to be set aside special. That's who you are. That's what sanctified means. Somebody special. You're called to be saints. You're called to have your act together. You're not called to be a mess. You're called to have your act together. All right? And, and with all that in every place, call in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. So he's, as he's starting his letter, he goes, I have a feeling that a lot of people are going to read this letter. More people than just the church at Corinth. And here we are, 2,000 years later, reading the letter. And I'm sure the Holy Spirit, who inspired Paul to write these things, is whispering in his ear, uh, let's make this a universal thing. Tell them it's for everybody. Right away, he starts right out. And anybody who reads it, if you believe in Jesus, this is for you. And so it has a universal appeal to it. Verse 3, grace be unto you in peace. Those are the two uh, things that 
Paul always puts in a letter. We put in a letter and say, dear so-and-so, hope you're okay or hope you're fine. In Paul's letters, he'll say grace and peace. Grace is special favor and peace is an unstrained relationship. And so he says, God is offering you special favors and a wonderful relationship without any strain and stress in it. And he said, that's what I'm here to tell you. Grace be unto you. God wants to do something special and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And God wants to have a good relationship with you. And he starts every letter that way because if you want to understand what church is about and get it in your mind, there's what a lot of it's about. God wants to do something special for us and he wants us to be very uh, close to him. And so he puts that in his letter. Verse 4, I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given to you by Jesus Christ that in everything you are enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. Or he says, I'm grateful to you because when I came there and started your church, I did it with the idea that here's what Jesus did. He came to earth and he died on a cross and he died for our sins and he rose from the dead. That's what he did. And he says, you got it two ways. He says, you got it knowledge, you understood it in your head and you're able to explain it. Utterance, you can speak these things. And he says, that's what I wanted for you. So the testimony of Christ is confirmed. In other words, Jesus is real. They can tell by the way you act. You're acting in a good way, trusting God. All right, verse 7. So that you come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, he mentions gifts here as part of the church. And one of the ways that we run a church is through gifts. That is special talents that God helps people to have. And uh, we really need those things in the church. And uh, there are one of the fads that I went through in the uh, late 70s and early 80s was gifts. Oh, they preached about gifts for months and months. Nothing wrong with that, but it's kind of like if you can't teach and if you can't prophesy, well, just sit there. You'll be, you'll be good for something. We'll think of something for you. And I don't think that was ever meant to be that way. I think everybody has something to contribute. The person that mows the lawn, the person that works in the kitchen, the person that's over there with the kids, the person that makes coffee. All, everybody's got something to contribute, and uh, that's a gift. And some people have other things that they do quietly behind the scenes. And those are all special abilities that God gives to the church. And so he says, you guys got a lot of it. You got a lot of special abilities that you have been given. You come behind in no gift. That is what your church needs. You got people there to do it. And that's very much the case. Uh, <clears throat> I was in a church for a long time where there was nothing to do. There's nothing to do. I mean, you know, they, they had a dinner. Everybody had to bring their own and sit down and eat your own food. What's the use of that, you know? I mean, I can do that at home. Uh, and a lot of things, you know, they just weren't using people. And so it got smaller and smaller and smaller because it's not how it's supposed to be. All right, now verse 8. Who shall also confirm you unto the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a very happy thing. Because someday you and I are going to stand in front of Jesus as the judge of all the earth. The Bible says he will be the judge of all the earth. And there will come a day when every human from Adam to the last one that's born will have to stand up in front of Jesus and uh, come to a, a, a judgment. When we say, well, how'd you do? All right, what did you do? What did you believe? What did you do? And when you stand up there, it's awful nice to know you'll be blameless. 
in that day, or that is we've asked Jesus to forgive us, come into our hearts, be our savior, and he says, when you get up there and they say, all right, what'd you do? I asked Jesus in my heart, you're good, come on in, you're good. And so, <laughs> I don't know about you, I'm thrilled with that. That's a good thing. It makes me feel a lot better to know when I stand in front of the judge, he says, go ahead, you're good, come on. I made it so you can't be denied uh, you're blameless in the day of Jesus. That's a good thing. Verse 9. God is faithful by whom you were called unto the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, <coughs> now, we got that now. God's good, he says. So now I'm going to start in. I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, to be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Whoops. Here's our first. Don't do that. Right away, as he gets started, he's patting him on the back. You've done good. So far, but we got something we got to fix. And here I'm going to get right to it right away. You're arguing and you're fighting among yourselves, and that's got to stop. It cannot go on. You have got to stop that. There's contention, there's strife. Right? How do we run a church? The one way we don't do it is to fight and to argue, and to have contention, uh, or stress is probably a word we're more used to. That's not how we're going to do it. And isn't it fascinating that uh, when it comes to division, when it comes to division in a church, uh, and just division, period, as uh, soon as humans get their way, they're dividing. They're dividing, and they're dividing, and they are dividing. It is the human condition. It's the human problem. There's always division among people. Well, that's not a mystery. Anybody should know that. All right? And then if we're going to take it uh, and put it in the church, he said, we... We just can't have that. And what are they arguing about? Well, let's see one of the things he mentions here, verse 12. Now this I say that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and Cephas is Peter, and I of Christ. So what they're arguing about is your favorite preacher. And I'm sure that they have heard these people. Of course they heard Paul. All right? He founded the church. Apollos came along and Apollos uh, was uh, probably the best preacher of his day. He had an ability to preach that put him higher than some people are eloquent by nature. And he was probably the best preacher. Peter, Cephas is the name given. Uh, and then they sure they heard him. And then uh, they mentioned Christ. So some guy comes along and he says, well, you may think Peter's hot stuff, but he's not. I think Paul is the one. And pretty soon somebody goes, no, no. I heard Apollos preach. He's way better than Paul. He's fantastic. So you're wrong about that. Well, then somebody comes along and says, yeah, you can say all that. I think Christ is the one we ought to have. You say, well, isn't that right? No, not if you're going to argue. It's not right. You can't say, I'm arguing for Christ. I hate Paul. I hate Peter. Think about <laughs> where they came from. Jesus chose Peter trained him for three and a half years, and he chose Paul. 
And I'm sure he chose Apollos too. The point is that we're going to argue over everything. His style of preaching versus his style. He said this, but he said that. And so we're going to have a fight over everything all the time. We are continually going to divide and divide and divide. And uh, it's got to stop. He said, you can't keep dividing. You can't keep dividing. It's, it's you know, there are churches that have little groups in them. And what I mean is a group of people over here who don't like those people over there. I was in a church like that because I needed a place to go and I went for a while and they asked me to teach a class. And so I started teaching and my class got a little larger and larger and larger. Pretty soon I watched people counting. How many people are in his class? You know, it didn't matter what you said, just how many people. Come on, come on, grow up, grow up. Dividing and fighting over everything is not the way it's supposed to done, do. So what is that, anyway? What is it when they do that? Well, it's pride. It's pride. The divisive nature, the way we don't run a church, we fight and argue and uh, have uh, stress he says, this is not the way we do it because we're going to divide up and say we're better than you. We're better than you. And that's where all division comes from essentially, isn't it? All division. In your home, in the church, in the workplace, somebody says, I'm better than you. And he said, that can't be in a church. That can't be. And he's going to argue with them, or more than argue, get to the real point, verse 13, is Christ divided? You say, oh, I'm for Christ, and I'm not for Peter and Paul. Is Jesus divided up into little groups? Is that what, that's not the way it ever was. Was Paul crucified for you? <laughs> No, Jesus. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? No, I got baptized in the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. There is basic truth that we are to embrace together, and if it comes from one person or the other person, there's a basic truth that we are to embrace, and we are not to fight and argue about it. And I want to tell you, there's churches that teach their people to fight. There's pastors that teach their people to argue. And that's a wrong thing. It's what he's saying here. We cannot be divided. And then he says, verse 14, I thank God I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say I baptize in my own name. Because of the way you're behaving there. Or you've got this person you like. I also, and I baptize also the household of Stephanus. Besides, I don't know whether I baptize any. Other, for Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. I am here to say, here's our good news. Jesus Christ has come into the world, died for us, we will forgive our sins, rose again to take us up to heaven. And that's where we get together and we stay together on that. And we don't argue over these little things. And he said, when I was there, I made a decision, all right, I am going to preach the gospel. He says, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but to us which are saved, it is the power of God. So he says, in the world that we live in, we're going to preach this gospel. Jesus Christ came and died, forgive your sins. You say, well, okay, we get all that. Yeah, well, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> maybe not. Uh, he said that the world looks at that like, that's crazy. What do you mean? Why do you think that? Why would that be crazy? Well, let's go on a little. And come back. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. That comes out of Isaiah. 
was prophesied 500 years before Jesus came. 20, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching, save them that believe. So, he said, people are trying to figure out life. And this was particularly true in Greece, where this church is. Philosophers coming along say we're really smart people and we can figure out uh, things and we love a good argument and we love to discuss the deep things of life. And Paul comes along and he says, yeah, when I tell you about the gospel, you think it's foolish. Because you think you're smarter than God. And so God said a long time ago, you go ahead, figure it out if you can. I'm going to destroy your wisdom. I'm going to make you look like fools. How's God going to do that? How does God do that? All right, verse 21, for after that the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. The world out there thought and thought and said, we're going to try to figure out what life is about. And they made philosophies and thoughts. And he says, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to say them that believe. Uh, nice to be called foolish. Said the foolishness of preaching. That's me, all right? Uh, nice to be called foolish because God says, this is kind of a strange thing. Stand up in front and talk and people listen. <laughs> and that is a strange thing sometimes. It's a strange thing. God decided that's the way he wanted it, and that's why I do it. But sometimes I think to myself, I wonder, it's a funny thing. People come in and listen. That's an odd thing. I had one young lady, and they were getting married, her and her uh, husband-to-be, and I said, you know, it's a real good thing when a couple gets married to go to church, and she said, why would I ever come? to listen to you. I said, well, I'm pretty sure you wouldn't. <laughs> and she didn't. <laughs> All right, this foolishness of preaching. What did God do? Think about what God do. No human would ever think this up. No human mind would conceive that this is the way to do it. Number one. We get blessed when Jesus is cursed. On the cross hanging there, he's a curse. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Right? We get blessed when Jesus is cursed. Right? We get healed when he gets wounded. Who'd have thought that up? We are justified or made just as if we never sin. When he's condemned, put him on a cross and condemn him to die. And because of that, we get justified. Uh, we lived because he died. What human would think of that? Nobody ever thought of such a thing. And then he says, here's what we're going to do. He says, uh, we're going to take some preachers. Well, up in Jerusalem, you got all these scribes that are educated beyond their own intelligence. And uh, who's going to preach? I got some fishermen. These fishermen are going to preach. We're going to get these guys. They've been fishing half their lives. And they're, they're going to be my preachers. The foolishness of preaching. And so... Uh, he said the wisdom of the world would have never figured out that this is the way it should be. And they didn't. And when Jesus came along and died and said, now you can live, and was wounded, he said, now you can be healed. They said, what are you talking about? That's crazy talk. And it didn't make sense to people. Verse 22, the Jews require a sign. They say if something comes from God, it's got to be a miracle. They had Moses. What did Moses do? 
Well, he prayed and the manna came down from heaven every day. Oh, okay, that's God's sign, came down from heaven. He went to the mount uh, in the, to get the Ten Commandments and there's smoke and fire all over the mountain and lightning up there and Moses walks up into the lightning and fire, comes back down and uh, that's the way we want it. So Jesus comes along and he says, what are you going to do? And it shows how stubborn they were. Look at what he did. He healed the sick, raised the dead, walked on water, created wine out of water. He was on and on and on. He did so many things. They just didn't want to believe. And that's the point. He says, Jews require a sign. They said to Jesus, give us a sign. Tell us you're real. The Greeks seek after wisdom. And the Greeks are always arguing and trying to say, well, here's what smart people think. Listen to us, and we'll tell you. And some of that arguing is uh, just sort of a uh, nonsense. Let's put it that way. And when you listen to, you say, well, here's the gospel. You know, Jesus suffered and died. Uh, you, and what do you think of that? Uh, I don't think it's any big deal. I remember I had a guy was coming to church here. He came for a little bit and he said to me, I know everything you, you're talking about. I already know it. I already heard it all. I know it all. Before you ever say it, I know the whole thing. I said, well, you, you want to preach next week maybe. You know, I said, really, it's not a big deal. I, I know it all. I remember he brought his kids on Friday night. I went out to say hello to him. sitting in his car. He was so drunk he couldn't speak. <laughs> couldn't speak. He was so drunk. And, of course, he died eventually, and they found out that he was abusing his own children. Uh, I don't, the point was, he didn't get it at all. At all. All right? But if you asked him, I already know. <laughs> that's tough. <laughs> you know, and so that's what he's saying here. And sometimes there's a, people think they're wise and they're smart. It was like uh, clever words that people use, little phrases. Remember when I was a kid, I learned this one. Why should you study? And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Maybe I'll check into that. So the more you study, the more you know, the more you know, the more you can forget, the more you can forget, the more you do forget, the more you do forget, the less you know. So why study? It's a, line. It's a lot of baloney, all right? <laughs> and sometimes things are a lot of baloney, and people use those things uh, like that. I remember there was a preacher who used to be on the TV, and he uh, said, well, I'm brilliant and smarter than everybody else, and he'd smoke a cigar while he was thinking, and he'd get up here, I'm ready, let's go. And he would measure the inside of the pyramid and say, all right, at this point, it was so many yards, and that represents years, and now man can stand up straight. And he goes up, and there's an opening in the pyramid, and he's, these are the mysteries of the pyramid, and I'm going to reveal to you that the Egyptians knew about Jesus. Egyptians didn't know about Jesus. And I listened to him for a while, and I said, you know, I could do that. <laughs> but one day I did. I was sitting in a Sunday school class, and I said, I want to tell you something. I said, the, the people who built this church knew that it was going to be closed for 30 years and then reopened. They knew it, and they hid it in a message in the church. And I said, so if you take a tape measure, and you measure from that door, outside door, and you come in here, and come down here and go up to the pulpit, it's 30 feet. So they knew. And people were looking at me. <laughs> and they said, wow, that's amazing. I said, I'm pulling your leg. Don't believe me. And some of them refused. <laughs> no, we think that might be true. That's not true. I just made it up. It's the wisdom of the world that means nothing. All right? And you can play with numbers and make people think you're a genius, and you're not. You're just playing around. I had one lady refused to, she said, no, I think it's true, and I don't care what you say. I said, Sorry, you know. Uh, God reached out to the human race 
and provided full forgiveness and said, now uh, I'm going to give you something that they can never take away from you. He sealed it with the resurrection of Christ. And so it's a wonderful thing that he did. And so he says, verse 23, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block. They said, why should God be crucified to the Greeks foolishness? Why would you live because that guy died? But unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. That's what it is. It's a wise plan that God came up with that humans could never come up with. 25, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So he says, uh, God's foolishness is way smarter than all your hard, brainy thinking. Right, so he says, that's the way we look at these things. And what's he trying to tell them all this for? You're arguing among yourselves over Peter's sermon and Paul's sermon. You're acting like fools. You're dividing the church in Corinth into little groups. You don't like him, and you don't like him, and you don't like him. He says, you got to stop that. No more. No more divisions among you. It's not how we're going to operate a church. And then he gives us this little gem. I, I just love this. This is good. Verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, how not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty. The base things of the world which are despised has God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. And so God made these choices. And people look and say, well, that's not a big deal. There's a manger in Bethlehem. It's a cow's box where you put food for a cow. And that's where he's born. And what is he? He's a Jewish carpenter. He's a Jewish carpenter. The manger in Bethlehem stood against the Roman Empire. It was wiser and infinitely stronger than the whole Roman Empire. They went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. Everyone went to be taxed, each to his own city. And Joseph went up out of Galilee to, to Bethlehem. And there Jesus is born in a manger. And they say, well, that's a kind of a... Phew, Kind of a low thing. God says, that's what I'm going to use. Something that you never would have thought of yourself. And so who is this? He's a Jewish carpenter. He's a Jewish carpenter. And he walks into Pontius Pilate. And he said, you wouldn't have any power unless my father gave it to you. Very impressive. All right. Who's better, the Jewish carpenter or the governor from Rome? Jewish carpenters got them beat hands down. He got the cross. There stands that stark symbol of pain and suffering. And you got the entire system in Jerusalem, a half a mile away uh, of the temple and all the gorgeous things and everything there. And what works? The cross works, not the temple. The cross. As he took the foolish things, the base things, the civil things of this world to confound the wise. All right? And then I, I like what he says because he says, you know, uh, take a look around and look at a church. Do you see a lot of noble people? No. See any mighty? No, not really. Uh, you see any wise people? No, they just seem like regular people. I like what Abraham Lincoln said. He said, God must have liked common people. He made so many of them. Very true. And he says here, uh, if you look at your churches, you don't find fancy people. You don't find important people. You just find people. 
regular old people. That's what we are, just regular old people. Nothing fancy about us, nothing wise, nothing mighty about us. Why? Because he chose the weak things of this world to confound the wise. And I, I have a TV show I like to watch, Dr. Pohl. I don't know if any of you have ever seen Dr. Pohl. He's a veterinarian, and he goes to a little Baptist church in, in, near where he works there. And... Uh, uh, <laughs> People come from his church, I imagine, or from around that area, and they bring in, and I got so I'm watching them, and I said, look at that person coming on the TV, whether they're bringing their cat or dog or whatever. I said, that's a weird looking person. I'll bet you that's a Christian. <laughs> and sure enough, they'll come in and say, I've been praying for my dog. <laughs> And I keep pointing them out. I said, I'll bet you that one's a Christian. My wife says, why do you say that? I said, because not many wise, not many mighty, plain, ordinary, common, regular old people come in, and you can almost mark Christians that way when you see them come. You know, you read their T-shirt on the show, and it says, praise the Lord. I bet you they're going to say something about their cat and going to make me laugh for an hour. And that's what he's saying. He says, here was God's plan. And it's so far above the way we think. Uh, it's so superior to the way you think it ought to have been, the way your mind could fix it up. It's so superior. Why? Verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. We don't walk up to God and say, here I am, God. I'm everything you ever wanted. No. No. We say, I don't know how it works. I'm just a plain old ordinary person. I got this plain old ordinary message that a lot of people won't believe that Jesus Christ suffered so that I don't have to. And Jesus Christ died so that I don't have to. And they say, what kind of nonsense is that? Well, I don't know. Plain and ordinary, common, everyday people accept it all over the place. And that's God's way. And so to these people who really ever want to argue and fight and think that they're better than everybody else, he just tapped them on the shoulder and said, you're not so smart. You don't get it. Why you want to fight and argue? What I'm saying is God is infinitely wise and you are not. So quit arguing about it and dividing up over it. All right? Get it right. And that goes for humans everywhere. It goes in your homes. It goes in your churches. Wherever you go, we are not here to argue. We are not here to fight. We are not here for contention. We are here to get along. He says, why? Here's verse 30. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Or that is, Jesus Christ is your wisdom. You want to be wise? And you get your head into Jesus Christ. Who was he? Who was he? Well, who's Jesus? He's meek and lowly of heart, right? He shall find rest to your soul. He would not lift up his voice in the street. He would touch a leper that was unclean. He'd love a prostitute, Mary Magdalene. Straighten up the old woman's back so she could stand straight. That's who he is. And he's loving and kind. And he says, so you want to be wise, get a good look at him. He's your wisdom. He's your righteousness. You go up to God and say, I did a lot of sins in my life, and I could count them all. And he said, okay, we got it covered. We've clothed you in Christ's righteousness, or that is, we're letting the righteousness of Christ stand in for you, and so you will be considered forgiven, righteous. He is sanctification. We say, well, what does that mean? Sanctification means the thing that we do to grow up as Christians. Grow up. He'll do that. 
in your heart. He'll get you to grow up as a Christian, to follow him and do what he wants done. And he's redemption. He paid for all the price of everything you do. That according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. If you are anything at all, if you are wise, if you are redeemed, and if you are righteous, and if you are forgiven, and if you are growing as a Christian, it's all because of Jesus, not because of you big brain figuring it out. And so he's saying to them, there is so much wisdom in what God is, and he has backfired it on your mindset. And so he says, stop arguing. No more. No more. Not necessary. It's pride that you think you're better than he. And that has got to go. That's one of the best things that he's going to say. He's going to say a lot of good things, but that's, yeah, if you want your church to go well, let's not be proud and argue. Let's, he says, get along. Learn to. Learn to. And it's important. So if you want to run a church, first thing, first chapter. No fighting, no arguing, no contention. You're not that smart. <laughs> You're not that smart. God is. You're not. So there's no need to argue and fight. We'll go on next week, chapter 2. Thank you.